Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, and to the letter of James. I've called this message Wisdom in Paradox. And so if you make your notes, that's the title for today's message. For those of you that are new, we're presently in a series on James. And our last series in the Gospel of Mark went for 63 weeks. So that was lengthy. Um, we're already in, this is only the third week of James. You got us early. And we're only actually going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1. But so that we understand the context, let's read from verse 1. And then we'll read through to the end of verse 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, And complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. And stable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises in its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces us. And Lord, I do pray that it would pierce us today. Lord, did you come after us afresh, Would your hands and your feet and your voice hunt us down afresh as we spend time in your word? Because your word is powerful. It changes lives. So Lord, would our eyes be open to the glories of this word? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some words in the English language that in my opinion really shouldn't go together. Words like jumbo shrimp. I mean, how does that work? It's just ridiculous. Large shrimp. It just doesn't make sense. It's called an oxymoron in the English language, and it is more moron than oxy. There's other words. Bitter sweet. Silent alarm. What good is that? Sugar-free lollies. That's horrendous. (laughs) Plumbers and pants. Those two words should never go together in any shape or form. Powdered milk. Horrible. Twitter conversations, tricky in 140 syllables. Invisible ink, no good, no good at all. There are many words in the English language that go together or put together, but really they just don't make any sense. And sometimes those words and words like them are put into statements that are true statements, but it, on the face of it they appear false. They appear to oppose one another. They appear to contradict one another, and that's what we call then a paradox. Paradox is a statement that on initial reflection looks wrong. It looks like a contradiction. It looks like two things that are opposed to each other. And yet in actual reality, they are true. That's a paradox. G.K. Chesterton, the wonderful English author, said this about a paradox. I love it. He says, a paradox is a truth standing on its head shouting for attention. That's what a paradox is. They are sentences that are as, if they are as if they are standing on their head, shouting for attention. We look at them and we think, that looks ridiculous. But in the premise of us looking at them saying, that looks ridiculous, it is getting our attention. And that's what paradoxes are meant to do. And in truth, the Bible is full of them. Giving is receiving. What? 
To die is gain. The weak are strong. The empty are full. The slave is free. The cursed are blessed. Death brings life. They're all paradoxes that are standing on their heads, shouting for our attention. And because they sound so ridiculous, they get our attention, don't they? You lean in and go, what? What does that mean? How does that work? The Bible uses paradoxes all the time. And James, Pastor James, the author of this letter, is the master of using paradoxes. See, as you know by now, James is writing to the dispersion. Jewish Christians who had been dispersed and scattered because of the heavy persecution that the Jerusalem church was occurring following the stoning of Stephen. Following the stoning of Stephen, everybody was being heavily persecuted in Jerusalem. And so apart from the apostles, everybody else started to flee to Judea, to Samaria, to various other places. And they were scattered and dispersed throughout. And so all of the people that James is writing to, once upon a time, would have been under his care. They would have been under his pastoral ministry in the Jerusalem church, but following the persecution, they're scattered, they are dispersed throughout. And so James is writing to them because he feels for them. He's bothered about them. He knows that their lives have been abruptly and dramatically and painfully changed. He knows that these men and women have unexpectedly become refugees. He knows that even in Judea and Samaria, they're still being persecuted. And he knows for many of them, they have in effect lost everything. They're now enduring poverty. One of the reasons for their poverty is because of the opposition and exploitation that they are experiencing at the hands of the rich. As so James writes to them, because he's their pastor, and he loves them, and he's bothered about them. And so albeit in his unique and direct and somewhat never-missing way, he's writing to them because he loves them and he wants to care for them. And here in verses 9 through 12 then, he wants to share with them some wisdom in paradox. He understands the way a paradox works. He understands that it's a truth standing on its head, looking for attention. And so as he gathers these churches around him to the dispersion, he wants to use paradox to say, hey, look at me. Because he wants to teach them some wisdom. He wants to care for them in the midst of their trials. And he wants to infuse them with some wisdom that can truly change their lives in the midst of their trials of various kinds. And the reason why these verses are in our Bibles is because I believe God wants the same for us. We all face trials at different times. Sometimes the test of adversity. Sometimes the test of prosperity. But we all face it at different times. And I think James, and indeed then the Lord, who is breathing these words through James, wants to prepare us for those moments and equip us for those moments and give us wisdom in those moments. In particular, within these verses, chapter chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, on prosperity and adversity. But then through the entirety of this section, from verse 2 through 12, on how to handle trials, how to keep working through them. And so he employs the mystery and glory of paradox. So I have three points this morning. The first two are the two paradoxes. And then the final point relates to verse 12, which is really the conclusionary verse of this whole section. And point one, number one, the first paradox, the rich, poor. The rich, poor. Verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. There should be something in us as Christians that goes, what? What is he on about? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, literally his high and lofty position. You see, the lowly that he's talking about here would have been the poverty-stricken Jewish Christians. Brothers and sisters that are uniquely poor now in this moment because of their faith. The refugees that have been so persecuted in Jerusalem that now in situ in Judea and Samaria as poor Christians. 
And because of their economically poor situation, they are also poor in the eyes of the world. Everybody looks on at them with some disdain. They have a very low position. And the truth is, in these Christians' eyes, they thought of themselves as low as well. We got nothing. We just got nothing. We're low. Craig Bloomberg, in his commentary on James, says the following wonderfully. He says, The Bible uses the word humble or low to depict a person who is of little significance in the world's evaluation and sometimes even one who is oppressed by the world. No wonder then when Jesus talks about the importance of humility, no one really wanted it. Because to be humble means to be low, means to be unimportant. People are uninterested in you, maybe even oppressed by the world. And what James is saying here then is, listen, paradoxically all be the truth, if you are low, if you are those poverty Christians, I want you to boast in your exaltation. I want you to take pride in and rejoice in your high position. Now that is a paradox. How does that work? Well, he explains it. You just have to pay attention to what you read. They have a high position. And there's two reasons why they have a high position. The first reason is because they're brothers and sisters. Look with me again at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Brother. It's not an accidental word. He's trying to help them see, listen, This is who you are before the Lord. I know you're poor in a worldly sense, but you are brothers and sisters. You are sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who you are. You have something to rejoice in, something to boast in. But this trial is only temporary because one day you will stand before the Father and he will say, welcome home to you because you are a son or a daughter of the King. Romans 8, verse 16 through 17 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What an encouragement this must have been to the dispersion to be reminded. You are sons and daughters of God Most High. God the Father holds you in his hand. God the Father is caring for you. He knows you by name. You are a son or daughter of the king. J.I. Packer in the book Knowing God says to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. I love that. There's a great and there's a greater still. It is great to know that you are justified before the Lord. That's what the gospel is all about. That through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're saved. That you can be forgiven of your sin, completely washed clean of it. You can be justified before him in a way that you're reconciled to him and can have a relationship with him. You can know for sure that through Jesus Christ, heaven is your home. That's great, is it not? But there's a greater still. And the greater still is that he also adopts you. You who were once far off get drawn near. You who were once his enemies are now seated at his table where he cares for you day after day after day. And on that day we'll stand before you as your father. What an encouragement that must have been to these Jewish Christians in their poverty. Yeah, you're poor. I get it. But you're brothers. You are brothers and sisters. God holds you in his hand. You are the sons and daughters of God Most High. But that's not all. There's a second reason why he wants them to boast in their lowliness. Why he wants to boast in their position. Understanding that their position appears low, but actually is high. And it's this, not only they are brothers... But they need to rejoice in their exaltation because the poverty that they're going through economically has cultivated a poverty of soul in their lives. And according to James, that's worth celebrating. Because you have no money, you're not distracted by the world like you were. 
And you now are totally dependent on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're not pulled into the word, into the world in the way you once were. You are on your knees before the Father of Lights. And this has created a poverty of soul in your life that is worthy of celebration. See, this, this features all the way through the Bible. You just need to pay attention to it. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus' very first words of public ministry are actually a quote from Isaiah 61, verse 1, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's not talking there about the poor as an economically poor, but the poor in spirit, those that realize, I need you! And James is celebrating with these Jewish Christians in this moment that you've become like that. You've become wonderfully aware of your need for the Lord, and this is something to be celebrated. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, the first beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed, supremely happy are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, verse 3, he echoes that, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you get the point? The whole idea that in Christianity it's your best life now is never in the Bible. The headline of Christianity is it's the poor in spirit that get it all. Because it's the poor in spirit that realize their utter dependence on him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And through that they thrive. There is no hint then in James's mind at all that he feels sorry for these Jewish Christians. None. Because he doesn't. And that's not because he's a harsh pastor. It's because he's a wise pastor. Kent Hughes then in his wonderful commentary says, James did not pity his poor brethren or encourage their commiseration. Rather, he saw them as spiritually advantaged. He knew this would be an advantage to them. Yeah, I get it. You've lost everything. You are in an economically way. You are in an impoverished situation. But listen, church, rejoice in your high position. Rejoice in your exaltation. Because through this test, through this trial, you can be reminded that you are brothers and sisters of the King. He holds you. He knows your name. Your sons and daughters, this trial, this testing is only going to be for a short time. Because one day, when you die or He returns, you will go to heaven and be with Him for all eternity. And even now, rejoice, because this poverty has brought about a poverty of soul. And blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Do you see? To James, this isn't something where he just wants to give him a big hug and say, I'm so sorry for you. He said, this is great. I'm pleased for you. I'm not encouraging it. I'm not celebrating it. But this is good. And so if you are the lowly, then boast in your exaltation. Boast in the reality that you are a part of the family of God and this poverty of spirit is an advantage to you. It's a good thing. You'll fall more and more in love with Jesus all over again. And I wouldn't want to rob you of that. So it's a good thing. In a sovereign grace, here then in this paradoxical truth, I think we have a truth that we really need to hear as a church, don't we? I mean, we live in a world which equates prosperity with happiness and poverty with misery. That's the way everybody thinks. And the truth is that mentality is seeped into Christianity as well. And so we equate prosperity with God's blessing and poverty with God's displeasure. But James turns that entirely on its head. It says, no. You got it all wrong. Poverty. Oh, then rejoice in your exaltation. You won't be distracted by the world. You will have a poverty of spirit that will help you depend on Christ and Him crucified ever increasingly. Exalt in it. Boast in it. Rejoice in it. It's a paradox. But it is wise. And it is true. This paradox 
shouts for our attention as it teaches us the reality that the poor are rich. I have to say, for me, I've experienced this, particularly in my travels to the Philippines. You know, there is distinct poverty in the Philippines and the churches that I get to serve there. But I've never encountered such a happy group of people in my life. Man, they love Jesus. They got nothing. Man, they love Jesus. Jesus is everything. You know, you tell them that, hey, we're going to do a weekend conference. They walk. They, they manage to get there somehow. I don't know how they get there with all these kids. The kids don't even say anything. They just sit there and listen. It, it's, just, it's just bizarre, but all day they just want to be taught. They just want to be taught. And then every time they come and say, oh, thank you for that. That was so good. Don't we serve an amazing Savior? And there is joy in their singing and amazement in their singing as they realize Jesus is enough for me. On paper, nothing. Because of nothing, no distractions, and Jesus is everything. The poor are rich. And may want, maybe no one needs to hear that more than the rich Christians, the Christians to whom James now aims his second paradox. In verse 10, as he teaches in verse 10, point two, about the poor rich. The poor, rich people. Look again at verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So let the lowly brother, let him boast in his exaltation, but the rich brother, let him boast in his humiliation. It's another paradox, isn't it? It looks at us, it sounds bizarre, but it's screaming for our attention. Because James wants to teach us something. See, we all tend to think of the rich as the super privileged and advantaged, don't we? We all tend to naturally think, oh, if only I had life like theirs, it would be so much easier. The rich people are the advantaged. The rich people are the privileged. And yet the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Bible teaches that as spiritually defined, the rich people are actually the underprivileged and the disadvantaged by their wealth. Do you see that, Sovereign Grace? It's totally different in the kingdom of God. They're not my words. They're Jesus' words. In Mark chapter 10, a rich young man comes to Jesus. This guy has possessions coming out of his ears. He's got everything. But he just wants one thing. He just wants eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and starts talking to Jesus. How can I get this eternal life? I want this eternal life. This is what Jesus says to that rich young man. He says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see it? We often tend to look at the rich as advantaged and super privileged, but Jesus says, no, not really. It's going to be so hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Why? Because they won't see their need. The fundamental thing we need to walk into Christianity is faith in Jesus, realizing I've got nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, but you are everything to me. And yet so often rich people are so distracted by the world, they don't see their need for anything. I think for me, that's been one of the big differences reaching out to people in Australia, in Sydney, as opposed to people in Newport, uh, Old South Wales, UK. People in Newport... In Wales, UK, on the whole, are poor. So you say to them, hey, do you ever have times in your life where you think there must be more to this? And they go, oh yeah, I hope so. 
and you get to share the gospel with them. I tried the same here many times. Sydney, hey, do you ever have times where you think there must be more to life than this? And most people go, no. This is great. <laughs> it's great. Got a great wife, great kids. Hey, can I show you my boat? Oh, I could do. And you're like, this is a different world. I see this, these verses playing out in real time and real life. It is hard ground here. In big part because there is great wealth. People don't see their need. They don't feel their need. They're fine. What are you on about? What can Jesus do for me that I haven't already got? Yeah, I'll give it a miss. Take it my cross. No, I'm fine. I'll do this. There's not a hunger. There's not a desperation. The Bible teaches that where there is wealth, it is a disadvantage. And so what about the rich Christians? What do we do when it comes to rich Christianity, the people that James is writing to here? Most of the dispersion are clearly impoverished, but there are some, somehow, that seem to have taken their wealth with them. It is still going well for them. They may be a minority, but they're there. And so what about these rich Christians, the small minority of Christians who in James's day had not suffered at this point deprivation of wealth, did their wealth then present a problem to them? Yes. Yes, it does. And the truth is, it does for every rich Christian all over the world today. It is a challenge being wealthy. And Sovereign Grace, you need to know, if you are sitting listening to me in the moment... You are the wealthy. Everybody thinks, I'm not wealthy. Oh, yes, you are. And if you start traveling to other countries, you will see how wealthy you are. We are the rich it is talking about here. Is that a challenge? Is there a test of prosperity? Oh, yes. And you are all enduring it. And it's hard. I think Mott in his commentary explains why it's hard. He says, the magnetism of riches is powerful and insistent. And we constantly need the wisdom of God to see through the facade. We do not have to be wealthy to desire money. And desire is as threatening as actuality. But we do not have to possess much in order to be snared by the delights of possessions. How true that is. We don't have to have much to be snared by the delights of possessions, to start to be fooled that, okay, you know, I get it. I just can't afford to give right now because I need this. I've got to have it. Everybody in Sydney has it. And suddenly we're snared by possessions way, way, way more than we think. And Satan's done a wonderful job of blinding us because we don't even realize. We just think this is normal. And yet the Bible is clear, this is not normal. There is a test of adversity, there is a test of prosperity. In the first world, we are undergoing the test of prosperity. We need to open our eyes to the test of prosperity because the Bible talks about it at length. Matthew 13, verse 22. Jesus warns us against the deceitfulness of wealth that strangles spiritual life. He's aware there will be one thing that will strangle your spiritual life, one thing that will pull you off living for Christ and Him crucified more than anything else. It will be your wealth. It will be your desire for stuff. Your ability to look on at the world and think, I need these things to be happy, so I want Jesus plus these things. We never say that out loud, but our hearts lean that way. He says it again in Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus warns us. Listen, it's a warning to us. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. For you cannot serve both God and money. It's a warning. You can't do it. And we don't want to be that little kid saying, yes, I can, yes, I can, I can. Because he's going, no, you can't. I know you. I made you. You can't. You're going to have to choose. Are you in for money? Or are you all in for me? But don't be deceived thinking you can be both. You have to serve one or the other. You're going to worship one or the other. You're going to look to a grounding truth in your life from one or the other. You're going to have to choose. What's it 
going to be. And so 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul, as he's coming to the end of his life, he instructs Timothy. Came across this verse this week, and to be honest, it was one of those moments where it just jumps out. You think, where has this been all my life? I must have read this several times, but I don't recall ever reading it before. Paul instructs Timothy, his child in the faith, the pastor of this church, listen, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. For they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that incredible? He's saying, Timothy, I get it. You are not going to be reaching out to the Macedonians. You are going to be reaching out to a church who is wealthy. So command them. Tell them to get the eyes on the prize, and the prize isn't their wealth. The prize is Jesus. The prize is that day. So command them and exhort them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? Because they'll get distracted. They're going to get pulled into the world in a unique way, undergoing the test of prosperity. So command them and warn them to open their eyes to the realities. Isn't that powerful? A powerful God-given Instruction. Alec Mottier then incitably says this. He says, The poor man may say he would not mind swapping his problems for those of the rich, but the Bible is clear that the problems of prosperity are as keen as those of stringency. Indeed, they constitute, if anything, a more insidious threat to a committed life with Christ. That line took me off my feet. We often pray for people that are undergoing poverty. But if anything, the weight of Scripture would be, no, no, pray for the rich. Pray for them. Because it is going to be a challenge for them. They are going to get sucked into the world in a different way to the poor person in the way they never will. So pray for the rich people. Because they're going to face distinct challenges. So what does James exhort these rich Christians to do? Well, paradoxically, he exhorts them then to boast in their humiliation. If you're rich, boast in your humiliation. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means boast as rich people in who you really were and indeed still would be outside of Christ. Forget about your stuff. Forget about it. Forget about your house, forget about your bed, forget about your car, forget about what's in your bank account and make your boast, the thing that you want to rejoice over and be glad in, the reality that you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. You were a nobody, running hard away from the Lord and uninterested in Him. And that was you. Your name was attached to that statement. You weren't interested in Him. You freely followed the ways of the world. You worshipped, in effect, a world that Satan was manipulating a building around. And you did it. You were stupid enough to follow that. And yet God in his grace saved you. He called your name. And he forgave you and redeemed you and adopted you. And now heaven is your home. But be aware that if he hadn't saved you, you would still be to be pitied with the masses. So make that your boast. Isn't it insightful? Isn't it wise? We don't boast in our stuff. We don't get excited about our stuff. We don't rejoice in, look how God's blessed me. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe it's a test. We rejoice in the fact that he called my name. And outside of him calling my name, I would never have chosen him. I would have never been interested. I would have never pursued him. I am to be humiliated more than most. And that's my boast. That's what amazes me. So to the poor, 
You boast in your high state that through your poverty, you're clearly displaying yourself as a brother, a sister in Christ. And this poverty economically is giving you a moment before the Lord to throw yourself in utter dependence upon him. You won't be pulled into the world. You can't afford it. So just throw yourself into Christ and boast in your, in your poverty. To the rich, well, you boast in your humiliation because you're going to get pulled into that world. It's going to be attractive and you can afford to go there. So step back and boast in your humiliation so that you don't get pulled in there. Boast in who you really were and who you really are outside of Christ. Isn't that incredible? That's wisdom in paradox. And if it wasn't enough, which I think it is, but if it wasn't enough, James then gives us a small illustration about the rich and how sad it would be to give ourselves to pursuing riches. He says this, verse 10, And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What he's saying is, listen, if you don't boast in your humiliation, you're going to get pulled into wealth. You're going to pull into the world's ways, and it is embarrassing. Because people get rich, and they don't take anything with them. And their life is gone in a... And what was the point? It's just like a flower that comes up in Palestine, which is what he's referring to. A flower that comes up in the desert in Palestine, and it looks good, it looks great. Everybody's like, this is amazing. But then the Sirocco winds and the heat come through, and by the night it's dead. And what was the point? It just came and it, it went. Nothing to show for it. Didn't take anything with it. It just died. James wants to help the, the, the rich Christians see do not get drawn into that worldly race because it will count for nothing. Boast in your humiliation. Make your whole life about Christ and him crucified. That's how you'll guard yourself. John Wesley, one of my favorite preachers, once said this, reflecting on these verses in James, he said, I'm a creature of a day. Already I think he's got it. His life's short. I'm a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit coming from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. A few months hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. Listen. So I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. He didn't want to get pulled into the world. And so he wanted to know one thing. The way to heaven. He wanted to see his whole life as just one day. He had two days on his calendar. This day and that day when he goes to be with Jesus. They were the only two days he wanted to think about. He wanted to boast in his humiliation. So he gave himself to just those two days and the only thing he wanted to know then was one thing, the way to heaven. You know, that statement caused Joseph Bailey, a wonderful 1920s author, to pray this every day of his life. I love this. Every day of his life he said, Lord, burn eternity into my eyes. What a staggering prayer. Oh Lord, help me not to get distracted this day with all of this but burn eternity into my eyes they got it right they got it right they boasted in their humiliation who they really are outside of Christ and so Christ became bigger in their eyes and their heavenly home became everything they wanted to run for everything they were about so James helps us with these two paradoxes that are literally calling our names. If you are poor, then boast in your high state. And if you are rich, boast in your humiliation. And then in verse 12, as he concludes this entire section, which has been running from verse 2, he draws our attention then to the future prize. 
prize that is still to come. And that's my third point, the future prize. This is a conclusionary verse that begins with, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's just exemplifying then what two of those trials can be. The test of adversity, the test of prosperity. But now he concludes with a statement that brings why it is all worth it into view. Why we should keep on running. Why we should count all these trials pure joy. Why we never want to give up. He says this, verse 12. For blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's why we run. That's why we keep going. Because blessed, supremely happy and fulfilled, that's what he's trying to draw our attention to here. Here is an individual, a man or woman, who is supremely happy and utterly fulfilled, ecstatic about what is about to occur. Supremely happy and fulfilled is the man who remains steadfast, who keeps enduring, keeps persevering, keeps running. Why? Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Not a golden crown, not the crown of a king, but the laurel wreath of an Olympic runner. That's what that crown is. It's the wreath that is put on somebody's head when they win the race, when they finish the race. He's saying that's why you need to keep running. That's why you need to keep enduring trials of any kind. That's why you need to keep going in the midst of a test because one day you will see his face. And on that moment, I want you to hear the words, well done, as you get on your knees and he puts that laurel wreath on your head. And when you see his face, you will want for nothing else. So keep running. At the end of it all then, he draws our attention to the future prize with an implied exhortation then to keep running, whatever the trial, whatever the test. Don't give in. Keep going because it'll be worth it. My friends, for as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Man is born to trouble, Jesus said. Things happen in our lives. Maybe you're here today and you are presently walking through a trial. You've gone through a test. Something happening in your life where you know, this, hey, this is me. I'm going through these trials. These trials of various kinds. Well, I can pick one of them because it's what I'm going through. Maybe you're here today and you're about to go through a trial can't pre-order them. You never know when they're going to come. Or maybe you're going through a trial without an expiration date. Something that, to be honest, you don't see finishing anytime soon. But as we then conclude this 11-verse series, like James concludes, I want to encourage you, my friends, count it all joy. Whenever you face trials of various kinds, count it all joy. Count it. Consider it. Be aware that he is with you in the midst of this trial. He can be trusted. The cross proves that. You are his son and daughter. And if you embrace this, he will use this for your good and his glory. The reason why this trial is even here is because he's giving you an opportunity to grow, to mature, to become more like Christ. He hasn't let you go at all. This isn't a punishment. This is favor on your life. He's seeking to help you become more like his son. Count it all joy. And if you lack wisdom in that, if this is hard for you for me to count it all joy, if any of you lacks wisdom, then let him ask God who gives generously because he will answer you. We don't serve a stingy God. He's not there with his big bag of lollies and going, oh, you want one? Okay, we'll have one. He's there with a bag of lollies and going, you want it? You're great. This is the type of God he is. He's just lashing it out there. Incredibly generous in every way. 
surpassing all expectations. So if you find it hard to gain wisdom in the midst of your trial, then ask God and believe he'll answer. Spend time in his word, he'll give you wisdom. Spend time singing, you will receive wisdom. Spend time praying, you will receive wisdom. Talk to godly people that you have in your lives and they will give you wisdom. God often uses people to talk to us about his wisdom. Count it all joy. When you face trials of various kinds, the way you lack wisdom, ask, and no matter what then, keep running to the finish line. Keep running for that laurel wreath. Keep running for that day when you will see his face and he'll say, well done. Well done. You kept going. You kept going. So welcome into eternal life. You did it. You finished the race. You know, I've never been big into poems in my life. Might surprise you. You probably often thought of me as a poet, but no. And yet there's one poem, only one, that I do love. And that for the last 20 years has been a poem that I've often reflected on in my life. It's called The Race. I wish I knew who authored it, but I don't. It's an unknown author. But maybe you are going through a trial and maybe you are tempted to give up. But I pray this poem speaks to you. Because it's the one that I read when I'm tempted to give up. It's about a little boy who is running in front of his dad and he keeps falling over all the time. As he's tempted to give up. And this is what it reads. Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out, why try? The will to rise had disappeared, all hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone, closer all the way. I've lost. So what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here, so get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is not more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to win once more, and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again, Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed, first place. Head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line, last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last, with head bowed low and proud, you would have thought he won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. Yet to me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, The memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, Get up and win that Sovereign grace, get up and win that race. Count it all joy 
when you face trials of various kinds. Where you lack wisdom, cry out to God for wisdom and he will give you it generously. But get up and win that race. And don't stop running until you see his face. And that moment when you get on your knees and he gives you the crown for finishing. So get up. Get up and win that race. And as you run, in and through it all, whether the trial be the test of adversity or the test of prosperity, the test of health, the test of relationships, the test of history, as you just keep facing things, difficult things in your life. Whatever it is, get up and win that race. And in and through it all, would Jesus Christ and him alone be your delight and your reward. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as we run that race, we are never alone. Because you're with us. We don't just have to peel away from you in hope of seeing you on that day. Lord, we see you now. Through the gift of the Spirit, both Father and Son inhabit our lives. That's all, Lord, I do pray for all of us. Would you help us to run? Would you help us to finish? Oh, Lord, would you help us when the different trials and tests come into our lives? Help us to count them all joy and help us to walk through them wisely. Lord, I do pray for us in the first world affluent situation we are in. Lord, help us not to get distracted as we undergo the test of prosperity. Help us not to find our identity and our joy and our passion in riches, in stuff. Maybe because we have them, or maybe because we don't, but we desperately want to. Lord, would you and you alone be our delight and our reward, no matter what. And so, Lord, whatever the trial, whatever the test, would we run for you? Knowing that in the here and now, as we run, you will be helping us to mature and become more like your son. And that as we run with endurance, we will receive that crown from you. So help us to run to you and for you. And in you would be all our delight. In Jesus' name, amen.